Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSightNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today we're going to be talking to Dr. Erwin Lutzer about his new book, No Reason to Hide, Standing for Christ in a Collapsing Culture, uh, released by Harvest House Publishers, who was kind enough to send me a copy uh, last year. And just to give you a bit of background on Lutzer, who many of you may have heard of, he's the pastor emeritus of the Moody Church, where he served as the senior pastor for 36 years. He is an award-winning author of many books, including We Will Not Be Silenced, and the featured speaker on three radio programs that are heard on more than 750 national and international outlets. He and his wife, Rebecca, have three grown children and eight grandchildren and live in the Chicago area. This book is a very interesting book because it's one of the most up-to-date analyses of what's currently going on, and it's a very valuable addition to a growing body of work on how Christians should respond to this culture. So without further introduction, here's my conversation with Dr. Erwin Lutzer on his book, No Reason to Hide, Standing for Christ in a Collapsing Culture. Oh, well, Dr. Lutzer, I guess I wanted to start off uh, with the title of your book, No Reason to Hide, Standing for Christ in a Collapsing Culture. Now, most of the listeners of this podcast won't need much of an explanation for the phrase collapsing culture, uh, but what prompted you to write this particular book in this particular moment? Jonathan, I looked over the cultural landscape and I realized that the Church of Jesus Christ has some very critical decisions. And what we need to do is to think through how we're going to handle these biblically. Let's remember that we did not ask for this culture war. The culture war came to us, and that's why it can't be avoided. In the business of our work, in our education, in law, we are indeed experiencing a tremendous heartbreaking collapse and what we need to do is to ask ourselves, how do we confront it? How do we move ahead as Christians faithfully and are willing to pay the price? So as you look at the book, you discover that there's such things as the demonization, of course, that is going on in our culture. If you don't buy into the leftist agenda, the censorship, one of my interests always has been propaganda ever since I wrote a book about Hitler, so I have a chapter on that, how propaganda is used to associate people's view of reality, that no matter how much facts may be against it, they will not change their minds. So all those are the kinds of issues, and of course, transgenderism and the issues of our... Let's start with, with demonization, because I think this is something that plenty of people uh, kind of sneer at, because they say, look, you live in a, you live in a country where, where every single president has claimed one form of Christianity or another uh, country that was founded, um, if not by uh, Christians, then by men who claimed belief in God, who were at a bare minimum deists. So if you were to make the case to people that Christians and Christianity are now being demonized in the United States, which was once the world's most powerful Christian superpower, how would you make that case? Well, that's very easy to make, actually. It used to be that if you were applying for a job in chemistry, for example, if you were a PhD and a good teacher, you could get a job in one of our universities. 
But today you probably can't get that job unless you sign in on such issues as are you comfortable with multiple pronouns? Are you comfortable with the whole LGBTQ community? What do you think about critical race theory? If you're not in line with that, you won't get the job. So the issue no longer is competency, which it used to be, but the issue rather has to do with whether or not you are having, uh, whether or not you have loud enthusiasm for the leftist agenda. That's the issue. But let me give you other illustrations. You know, the School of the Ozarks in Missouri find a, uh, filed a lawsuit against the government because transgenders are supposed to, you know, have equal rights. Now, this is a Christian school, strongly Christian. So the whole idea is they're soon going to be having pressure that if a boy comes to the school and says, I'm a girl, let's suppose that he was born Bert and now wants to be called Bernice because he's a girl, how would you like it if you had a daughter and he was put in the same room as your daughter? Because after all, there cannot be discrimination. So we're living at a time of irrationality. We're living at a time when there, there isn't much uh, going on in terms of making sense, even common sense. And so Christians can't avoid these issues. So if you want to make the case, you can certainly do that. And then let's talk about censorship. The simple fact is that uh, the European Union, and I know that we're not talking about Europe, we're talking about Canada and the United States, but the European, uh, European Union made a law that, it, that you cannot criticize Islam. Now think about that. What they are saying is we have to be so tolerant that even when someone attacks our freedoms, we cannot respond. So we're living at a time here where we see the eclipse of Christianity, the eclipse of God, and as a result of the eclipse, darkness, spiritual darkness, moral darkness has encompassed the land. Now you uh, you spent decades in ministry, and that's one of the one of the things I wanted to ask about your book, uh, No Reason to Hide, is whether or not you've seen, especially in the last decade, a real shift in what the challenges to Christianity were. Because when I was a teenager, if you wanted to get involved in defending Christianity, you were going to be taking a look at the resources of guys like Jay Warner Wallace with Cold Case Christianity, um, you know, Greg Kolkel from Stand to Reason. You wanted to be able to defend the historicity of the resurrection, maybe using stuff by, by Lee Strobel. None of that stuff really matters anymore if you're out on the streets talking to people or if you're out on the campus talking to people with regards to this is not people's main objection to Christianity. People's main objection to Christianity, as you decided, is this idea that Christianity is somehow hateful. Um, and people don't actually argue so much about, well, you know, did Jesus actually raise from the dead so much as, well, if you don't think Joe can marry Steve, then you're a hateful bigot. And we shouldn't allow allow you to, to articulate that position. The prime minister here has called even expressing a position like that fundamentally un-Canadian highlighting both his intolerance and his ignorance of Canadian history. 
So would you would you say that you've noticed a shift in the sorts of apologetics that Christians need to defend Christianity in the public square over the past 10 to 15 years? Absolutely. It used to be in the 70s and 80s. You're absolutely right. The issue before us was, is Christianity true? That's not the issue anymore. The issue now is Christianity is oppressive, especially as it relates to slavery and women. Therefore, Christianity is evil, and facts really do not matter. So you're right. We're, we have a very different apologetic task. Let me give you another example of changes. In the 80s and even in the 90s, we were here in America emphasizing uh, the uh, bringing together racial reconciliation. As a matter of fact, we had sermons about it, Moody Church itself on any Sunday morning. You would have more people from more than 70 different countries of origin, and we delighted in that because the book of Revelation says that in the end, there shall be people from every tongue and people and nation in heaven. But now all that has been torn apart. We're living in a different era. Critical race theory has put people into different categories based on the color of their skin. What we've discovered is that the unity that we were seeking has now been fragmented. You have blaming, you have shaming, you have a sense of entitlement. And so critical race theory keeps tearing apart what Jesus died to bring together. So it's a whole different ballgame out there. Of course, in the 80s and 90s, we did not have transgenderism. The whole idea that men could have babies too, or that a woman could become a father, was absolutely unthinkable. But today, the unthinkable has become thinkable. And so it's a whole new era when we think in terms of Christianity, its defense, and living it out in the public square. Now, when you start to look at, at the racial issue, it, it becomes more difficult because it's very— it's very hard to actually bring real history to bear on the issue. So, you know, it was recently Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And one of the things that people seem incapable of understanding is that the fundamental difference between the original civil rights movement and the Black Lives Matter movement is that what the civil rights movement did for all of its flaws and for all of its flawed characters was appeal to the Christian conscience of the United States in explicitly Christian terms, using hymns and psalms and Bible passages they didn't challenge the underlying Christian foundation of the United States. Instead, they appealed to it and on that basis stated uh, that an injustice was being perpetrated. Whereas Black Lives Matter, which claims to be the heir of the civil rights movement, is in fact a profoundly and admittedly anti-Christian organization committed to the destruction of the nuclear family, in their words, on their own website, um, highly supportive of... Of, of a legalized abortion, which of course is the destruction of children in the womb, and a lot of the money that got donated to Black Lives Matter, even by well-meaning Christians who believe this idea, this money was funneled to transgender groups. And so the history that we're looking at, even in the discussion about critical race theory, is not an accurate history and doesn't accurately identify the differences between those two movements. How do we start to address this? 
Well, you know, it's interesting that just the other day on an interview, I was asked what Martin Luther King would say <laughs> about critical race theory. Of course, if he stands by what he said, he would be opposed to it. Because his most famous quoted line is this, let's not judge people by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. That no longer is true. That is vilified mm -hmm. in the present civil rights movement. We judge people on the basis of their skin. In my book, um, No Reason to Hide, which we're talking about today, I mentioned that I read White Fragility. White fragility basically is saying this, that if you want to fight racism, the way you do it is become a racist. If you're white, you're a racist. If you don't admit to it, it only proves your racism. So we're living in an era here. And then it says this, that blacks cannot be racist unless they were a dominant group. Now, Jonathan, just think through that for a moment. What they are saying is, is that reconciliation really is impossible. It all has to do with who is in power. It has nothing to do with the human heart. And of course, Christianity would say that we really don't have a skin problem. We have a sin problem. And as I mentioned, we were trying to overcome all that through racial reconciliation. But now the Black Lives Matter which of course is based on Marxist principles, critical race theory, like a sledgehammer, has come and torn all that apart. So we're in a different era. We're in an era where racism no longer is like it was under Martin Luther King, and he appealed to scripture, he appealed to the churches. Nowadays, the churches are vilified, and of course, Marxist ideas hold sway. And it's it's quite obvious to anybody who's looking uh, closely, or at least knows what they're talking about, that these are Marxist ideas, because in, of course, a Marxist framework, you have to have an oppressor and you have to have an oppressed, and that's the binary that every every sort of contest, alleged or otherwise, is, is put into. But I wonder what you think um, is the most effective way to respond to some of the challenges that you lay out in your book in great detail. Because I can't help but think of, of, of the book Dominion, for example, by Tom Holland, in which he lays out the fact that even, even those movements we've just been discussing are based on Christian principles, because they can't explain, you know, the is-ought conundrum, of course. They, they claim the world should be a certain way. Well, why Why should it be that way? And ultimately, even sort of the glorification of the victim was fundamentally the Christian idea of the last shall become first and the first uh, shall become last. And uh, Tom Holland lays out the ways in which a lot of progressive ideas are fundamentally a, a perversion of the Christian ideal, with Marxism being the most infamous and bloody example of this. And he actually says at one point, if the crucifixion had not happened and Christianity had not triumphed, the world never would have gotten woke. Do you think that it's possible to gain an audience by simply appealing to the historical reality of the fact that the foundation they are attempting to set up on is the Christian foundation while they saw off the branch they're sitting on? I want to make two comments uh, for you, Jonathan. 
the first comment is simply this no i'm a little bit i'm a little bit pessimistic because we're not living in an age of reason if we were living in an age of rationality we'd be able to make that case but people are doing what they want to do it is desire driven theology the bible predicts that the day is going to come when people are going to follow teachers who magnify and i'm of course um I'm not quoting directly, their desires. So facts have little to do with somebody who says, I want to believe what I want to believe, and logic plays no part in it. In my book that we're highlighting, No Reason to Hide, I point out that at Princeton, it is said that if you believe that mathematics has only one right answer, you're a racist. Well, you can imagine having a grad in your area and would you put money in this woke bank you go to withdraw money and they say we have our truth you have yours mathematics doesn't have just one right answer it's insanity but remember we're living in an age where absurdity and insanity no longer is an argument against anything that's the first comment i want to make but the second comment that you want to make, I find very fascinating, and I don't think we can get into it in this uh, discussion, because it would lead us into some very interesting philosophical waters. You're absolutely right. When the left talks about compassion, equality, they are stealing from Christianity and they are assuming the existence of God. You and I, and I don't know you well, but if you and I had time, we would prove that out of atheism, no morality whatever can ever possibly logically arise. And we can prove that in various ways, as clearly as two plus two is equal to four. But because atheists and the radical left are created in the image of God, they have a morality, they talk about compassion and equality, they give different definitions, of course, but they do that because they are created by God. They do not do that because they are atheists or agnostics, because out of those worldviews, no morality whatever can arise. Now, we get into something interesting here with the terms, the terms like love and compassion, because with uh, chapter seven of your book, Will We Compromise with the Christian Left? You talk about a false view of love. And what's really interesting to me is that our failure to define the term love in our cultural discussions has led to a lot of this insanity. I think of this discussion I had um, back when I was in university where I, I was hearing about how the missionaries to North America who were seeking to bring the gospel to indigenous peoples were, you know, they were evil, they were bigoted, um, you know, they, they were cultural colonialists, all this stuff. And we were talking about a couple of missionaries who were, who were tortured and, and, and killed um, by the indigenous people they had come to bring the gospel to. And I asked one question to the class. I just said, well, do you think that they really believed what they believed about the gospel? Everybody agreed, well, of course. Why else would they be willing to die for it? And then I asked, well, so what would be more racist, believing that indigenous people are so worthless that it was better to just leave them alone and go to hell? 
or loving them so much that you're willing to die to bring them a message despite the risks? Like, which one would actually constitute hatred and bigotry? And what surprised me was not the fact that they didn't know what to do with what I was saying. It was the fact that they'd never bothered to consider what love actually looked like and what hate actually looked like. Because to me, the apathy that says those people aren't actually worth bringing the gospel to would be far more akin to hatred than saying, I love them so much that I'm willing to risk my life to bring this to them. Now, you don't have to believe that what those missionaries were saying is true, but if they believed it to be true, a responsible historian will admit that what they are doing is, is unquestionably loving. So what has happened with this strange perversion or just inability to define the word love in the first place? I point out that love can be very evil. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they didn't stop loving. They just stopped loving God, and they turned their affection and their love to other things. The Bible says that they became lovers of money, lovers of self, lovers of evil. The Bible talks about those who love evil. So not everything that is love is really love. Somebody pointed out that if you really want to, by the way, this is a parenthesis, somebody pointed out that if you really want to see hate, if you want to see raw hate, attend a love is love demonstration with a sign that says marriage is between a man and a woman. Oh, yeah. Then you'll really find out what hate is. But anyway, to your point, the Bible doesn't allow us the privilege of defining love however we want it to be defined. Jesus said, in this you shall know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. But he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And we find out that the first commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our hearts. And then what follows from that are the other commandments. So love is not just, you know, when the Bible says that um, in the book of Judges that they began to do whatever they wanted, what they were doing basically was whatever was just or right or loving in their own eyes. So as long as the word love is drifting around in our culture and people are using it, you're absolutely right. They are not using it biblically. In the Bible, we are told what love is. It's defined and it's confined within the will of God and the teaching of Scripture. I want to end here with with talking about chapter 10, and, and the reason for that, and I'll have one sort of closing question for you, but the reason I was very interested in chapter 10, which is titled, Will We Submit to the Great Global Reset?, is because the Great Reset has become sort of a catch-all term that includes all kinds of things. Um, some people use it as a term to describe whatever theory they have about the way things are handled internationally. Um, sometimes it's a catch-all for all kinds of nefarious forces that are difficult to define. But of course, there's, the Great Reset is also uh, you know, a book by Klaus Schwab, who is the founder of the World Economic Forum. I have his book, The Great Reset, on my desk. Uh, and so how do you look at these international machinations from a Christian perspective? Because I think that people do need to have a very clear-eyed 
academic, intellectual perspective on this because people can write off, oh, the Great Reset is a conspiracy theory, despite the fact that there's a book published by, you know, somebody who wrote wrote it and wanted people to read it. Um, but it's also just really important to understand what it actually says. Well, actually, that chapter that you're referring to, I quote uh, Klaus Schwab often. Yes. Because, indeed, he wrote the COVID reset. So we must understand the fact that, um, you know, let's go back to Karl Marx. Just the other day, I was reading, once again, the Communist Manifesto, and the very last paragraph says, workers of the world unite. Marx had a global vision for the unity of the world. Of course, he hoped that it would be a communist vision and eventually all the countries of the world would be united. But if you go to Revelation chapter 13, and that's really the key chapter there, it says regarding Antichrist, and this is chilling, all the people of the earth shall worship him, except those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. Later on in the chapter, it goes on to say that you cannot buy or sell without the mark of the beast. So Revelation 13 tells us that a time is coming when there's going to be globalization in three areas. Religiously, people are going to be expected to bow down before the beast and worship the beast. Politically, the beast is going to rule the whole world. And economically, economics will be the way in which he does it. You either bow down or not. Now, speaking of Klaus Schwab, what he's talking about is that COVID has given us this wonderful opportunity to bring about equity to the world. And of course, the rich countries like America have to make sure that they give their part, because remember this, according to Marx, if you have riches, you got it on the backs of the poor. America and Canada, the two richest countries probably in the world, they owe the rest of the world because they became wealthy and in the process they did it on the backs of poorer nations. So what you have is a global where you have anything but distributes wealth in accordance with equity and fairness. Of course, all freedom has to be taken away. But here's the interesting thing, and I'll end with this quote. I remember reading Schwab, and he says expressly that when the day comes, and of course, COVID could be used for this if we have another COVID outbreak, some disease, when that day comes and you have the imposition of a globalist agenda, he said, of course, there are going to be those who will ob object because they will have to give up their civil rights, the freedom of speech, and so forth. But he says, because of fear, they will submit. So maybe it's going to be because of COVID. Maybe it's going to be for some, uh, excuse me, some other reason. But the world will be united and that's what I call the Great Global Reset. Final question. Most of this book is dedicated to diagnoses, but you also have a prescription. So how should Christians respond to this 
uh, collection of threats that you detail so you know gruesomely at times in this in this book. Well, let me give a very quick answer. There is not a one size fits all. Everyone has to ask what God wants him or her to do in their context. For example, if you're a teacher in a school and you are told that you have to teach a pornographic uh, curriculum to your students, you have to object, you have to find a way around it. If not, you have to find another job. Somebody who teaches in the school system here in Chicago told me he was told it is not enough for you to simply tolerate same-sex marriage. If you don't celebrate it, you could lose your job. Now, for him, that's a line in the sand. He can't celebrate what God has condemned. So, Jonathan, here's the question I want to ask. Is the church going to come around him if he loses his job and say, you have a wife and family, we're here to support you financially and in other ways? We're even going to have to rethink what church is all about. What about the businessman who texted me the other day and asked whether or not he should sign a diversity statement? Part of that diversity statement I agree with, but there's parts of it that I can't agree with and I don't think he should agree with as a Christian. So I think he has to go to his boss and say, you know, I can't. I can't do this, this, this. I can do this, 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 but not this. And if it is an insurmountable roadblock, he's going to have to get a different job too, and we're going to have to learn to suffer for Christ. That's why the last chapter in my book is trying to help Americans and Canadians see the value of suffering and how Jesus said, blessed are you. If men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. So get back to my main point. The question that you have asked has to be asked by every single individual Christian. That's in my that's why in my book, at the end of every chapter, I have an example of someone who stood against the culture and remained faithful. Thank you so much for taking the time to discuss this book with us. Thank you, Jonathan. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Erwin Lutzer on his book, No Reason to Hide, Standing for Christ in a Collapsing Culture. For anybody who is interested, he will be speaking in February at the 2023 Canadian Religious Freedom Summit. And anyone who wants to check that out should go to thefreedomsummit.ca. They have a lineup of very interesting speakers on a range of topics relating to how Christians should live in the 21st century in the post-Christian age. If you'd like to listen to other conversations like this, head on over to lifesightnews.com, click on the podcast tab where you can subscribe to The Van Maren Show, get our shows delivered to you. You can get us wherever you download your content. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you'll join us again next week.